Good morning. My name is Christian. I'm one of the pastors here at Cornerstone. I get the unexpected privilege of getting to teach this morning. Um, as, as Billy mentioned, when uh, Todd and Lisa knew they had to take Jace down to the, the hospital, he reached out to a couple of us to see if one of us could preach. And uh, uh, I, I, basically, all I was to say, Todd was rather well prepared this week in advance. And so when he said, here's my notes, can you preach? I looked at him and went, yeah, I, could, I think I could use this. Like, I'm really glad for that, that even in the way that he prepared, it was uh, um, put together in an easy way for me to kind of step in. But that being said, I apologize if this morning I'm a little more tied to the notes than usual, simply because I haven't spent as much time in it. But we're going to be kicking off this morning our series on the book of Revelation, we talked about this, I, I gave you a heads up back in December when we did our uh, Advent series of comparing the, 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 the humble picture of Jesus as the baby in the manger with the glorious picture of Jesus that we see in Revelation 1. And we talked about how that's where we were going to be spending our spring. We're going to be in the book of Revelation between now and Easter. We'll be moving at a pretty good pace. There's 13 weeks, including today, until Easter Sunday, and there's 22 chapters in the book of Revelation. So we're going to be moving quickly, and I want to talk to you a little bit about why. But I would imagine that for many of you in this room, as we talk about uh, studying the book of Revelation for the next three or so months, that elicits a number of different reactions. The reality is this book, um, for some it's intimidating, for some it's confusing, some might strangely find it boring. I don't know how you could find it boring. For others, it just scares you. I remember as a kid the first time reading through that book and going, I'm not going to come back to that one for a little while. Because it did, the imagery and things like that, and it did kind of scare me. It also sometimes scares us because as people talk about the book, as people teach on the book, there tends to be a lot of easy disagreement about what the book means, and that causes conflict. And conflict is not comfortable. This book can be seen as controversial, and because of that, in order to avoid conflict surrounding the interpretation of this book, there is the temptation to avoid the book altogether. More than any other book in the New Testament, the the book of Revelation relies upon an understanding and familiarity with the Old Testament. It's kind of like, for those of you guys who were in college, it's the prereq. The Old Testament is the prerequisite to understand what's going on in the book of Revelation. I, I would say, uh, this is Todd's analogy, he said it's kind of like to read Revelation without understanding the Old Testament is like trying to understand a calculus book without first understanding algebra. I don't know either of those, so yeah, that's intimidating. <laughs> That's intimidating to me. But here's the question I want to ask you. What if our avoidance, our hesitancy to pay attention to this book, to study this book, because it's uncomfortable, has actually made us weaker as followers of Jesus? What if this book is actually necessary for us to know what it means to be a faithful follower of Jesus? What if focusing predominantly in the Gospels and the Epistles on, what, on, on the past and present work of Jesus and avoiding the many futuristic pictures and themes that we see in the book of Revelation has actually given us a, a shrunken view of Jesus? 
We have a hard time seeing him as the warring, victorious king who will one day right all wrongs in the universe. That's the picture we see in Revelation. Now, that being said, we need to approach this book understanding what we're looking at. There was one commentator, by, uh, a guy by the name of Simon Woodman, who had a great illustration that helps us understand how we want to approach this book. He says this. He says, the problem that many people have when trying to read Revelation is that they get so caught up in the detail that they miss the big picture. He says, a while ago, I went on a visit to Paris and was fortunate enough to visit the Musée d'Orsay. I don't know if I said that right at all. But he said he went there to see an exhibition of Impressionist paintings. Impressionist painting, guys like Claude Monet and so forth. He says, I was struck by the size of the paintings, but I realized that in order to understand the pictures, I needed to take a few steps back and try to appreciate the whole effect. If I stepped too close to the painting, any sense of meaning was lost, and I was simply confronted with a mass of colors and shades that I could have stared at all day long and still been none the wiser about what the painting was about. However, he says, if I stood back and took in the picture at whole picture at once, suddenly the picture would make sense. Let me show you an example of this. I'm going to show you a close-up of one of the works by Claude Monet. Looks pretty cool, huh? Lots of color, lots of texture. Can't tell if it was done by a master or a child. That's up close. If you were to zoom out, though, you would see that all of that blotchy and color and mixture is a part of this painting, of a beautiful picture of poplar trees in autumn as the sun's kind of setting behind the artist. I was looking at it really closely, and this close-up that I just showed you I believe, if I use my little handy laser pointer, it's this little section right there. I was looking at it real close. I think that's the same that we see. But if what you do is you get your face right up close, you, can't, you say, okay, there's a lot of color, there's a lot of paint there, but what is the picture? I can't see. As one of the things I remember as a college student taking a visit to the Getty Museum, and they have several works by Monet and Manet and several other impressionist painters. And the remarkable thing is, you really do have to stand 20, 30 feet away to take in the picture. The question is, how did those guys paint that? How could you be right up close to the canvas and do all that knowing that there's a bigger picture? I remember imagining uh, one of these guys with like a 30-foot-long paintbrush <laughs> painting from across the room. But in a similar way, this is often what happens and why we get so confused about the book of Revelation. He says this, the Woodman continues, he says, the same is true of Revelation. To spend too long on any one image without taking a step back and viewing the work as a whole is a sure way to misunderstand John's intended message. Many weird and unconventional readings of Revelation have emerged because people have begun with a detail with which they have become obsessed before they have appreciated the book as a whole. This doesn't mean that we should completely neglect the details but without understanding the whole picture, it's kind of like trying to do a puzzle without looking at the picture on the box top. It's going to be harder to know what it is that you're putting together. But God has given us the box top, if you will. And to try to do the puzzle without it is to get hung up on specific images. That's why we're going to move quickly and look at big pictures as we go through the book of Revelation. 
I hope that by doing this, we can zoom in a little and appreciate the different strokes and colors of the book, but without losing sight of this big picture. Having said that, though, talking about looking big pictures lots at once, this morning we're only going to look at the first three verses. (laughs) Sounds like a contradiction, but it's interesting because in some ways the first three verses of Revelation is kind of like the box top to the puzzle. In these first three verses... John kind of introduces the main themes and even, I guess you could say, the the nature of what this book is. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Revelation chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 3. If you need a Bible, we've got some guys who would love to put one in your hand. Take a look at this together. Revelation 1, 1 through 3. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. For the time is near. We're going to look at several things this morning. I would encourage you, if you don't normally take notes, this is one of those days to take notes because kind of what I want to do this morning is give us an orientation. This is kind of like the, the, the guide before you go on some big long hike saying, here, let me lay out the map, the route for you, tell you what we're going to look at along the way. So this is kind of an orientation. We're going to talk about several different characteristics of this book today that we see here in these verses But I would say that often on Sundays we try to strike some sort of a balance between preaching and teaching, and kind of by design, this one leans a little bit more heavily on the teaching side, because it's kind of like learning how to play a new board game. you got to pay attention to the rules, how the game works, in order to get the full experience of playing the game. In a similar way, we need to understand what this book is and how it works for the rest of the time that we go through it. The first thing we're going to talk about this morning is the nature of this book, what is it? And we see it right there in the very first, the second word in the whole book. It is a revelation. A revelation. The the, the word in Greek is apocalypsis. Apocalypse. Think about that for a minute. We actually use this word somewhat frequently, but I think that our common use of the word is actually pretty far off from what John had in mind when he used the word. I mean, think about the different ways that we use this idea of an apocalypse. Just last month, as the fires swept through Ventura County and Santa Barbara County, you had people on the news saying that the devastation was apocalyptic. It looked like a war zone, like the end of the world. Over the last 10, 15 years, there's been a lot of books and movies that have come out that we would... There's almost a new genre created around it called post-apocalyptic stories. That in some ways, these stories take place after some huge war or disaster has happened that has caused human society itself to completely disintegrate. And whoever's still around has to try to somehow piece life back together post-apocalypse. Then, uh, don't even get me started, the most ridiculous are the zombie apocalypse stories that people like to tell, right? Right? But in each one of these things, you see this idea of apocalypse means some gigantic disaster, it's the end of the world as we know it kind of way of looking at things. 
That's not what this book is. This book does talk about disaster and judgment, and I guess you could say in the end of the world, but the word apocalypse, it actually just means to uncover or to reveal. Something that was hidden or unknown in the past that is now brought to light. That's what a revelation or an apocalypse is. This word is actually used throughout the New Testament, even in the Gospels, to refer to Jesus' first coming. The first place it occurs is actually in Luke chapter 2, when Jesus is maybe a little over a month old, when Mary and Joseph bring Jesus to the temple to dedicate him. And there they encounter a godly man by the name of Simeon. Simeon, it says, was a righteous man who was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. In particular, the Holy Spirit had made known to him that he would not die before he saw God's Messiah come. And so here come Mary and Joseph walking into the temple courts with baby Jesus and Simeon sees him and runs and I don't even know if he asked for permission. He grabs Jesus in his arms and begins to praise God. And in Luke 2, here's what he says. He says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. A light for revelation, apocalypse for the Gentiles, and for the glory of your people Israel. The Messiah who had been foretold in the Old Testament but was hidden until then has now been made visible. It was an apocalypse, a revealing. And what we have in Revelation is another apocalypse, unveiling of this same Messiah, but in a much grander way. That's another key aspect of understanding what this word apocalypse or revelation means. It speaks about things that were promised or alluded to by God in the Old Testament now coming to fulfillment. While there are no direct quotations from the Old Testament in the book of Revelation, some scholars estimate that more than half of all the verses in the book of Revelation contain allusions or some form of, 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 of a reference to Old Testament prophecy. In many ways, this book is intended to be the grand finale in the long string of promises that God has made, starting all the way back in Genesis 3, verse 16, when God promised that one day a descendant of Adam and Eve would come and crush the serpent. It's this gigantic snowball of promises that have been rolling down the hill, and it comes to fruition, or we see the fulfillment of those promises in this book. We have to understand that, because... When you talk to most people about Revelation, we think that it's confusing. It's, it's a riddle, it's a puzzle that we can try to figure out, but we never really can. And so people put together their charts and their graphs and the arrows and everything showing how everything works. And I don't know about you, anytime I've seen a chart or a graph on Revelation, I've left more confused, not clarified. But if we go back to this idea of the painting and the big picture, Revelation can be confusing when you look at it at the granular level. But in the big picture, it is anything but confusing. So, 
What does this book reveal? What is it, uh, the apocalypse, what is it making known or clear to us? You don't have to write these things down, but if we look at the big picture of this book, here are some of the things that this book reveals or uncovers. It reveals warnings, encouragement, instruction to the church. It reveals the supremacy and power of Jesus Christ. It reveals the ultimate victory of believers who've died for their faith in Christ. It reveals to us a picture of what heavenly worship looks like. It reveals the consummation, the coming together of all human history. It does reveal to us this idea of the Antichrist, the final alignment of the political and religious state of the world in opposition to our God. It reveals God's patient, relentless fight against the forces of evil. It even reveals to us the coming together of the spiritual and physical of the kingdom of God in the new heaven and new earth. Ultimately, this book reveals the victory of Jesus over all powers, human and demonic, and the final end of every enemy of God. That is clear. In the big picture, Revelation is anything but a puzzle or a riddle. Clarity is its very purpose. It is a revelation of the unveiling of God's final plans and purpose. Does that make sense? At the center of this revelation, this apocalypse, the central idea of the book of Revelation is not just an idea, it's a person. It's Jesus. Look what he says. Look back at verse 1. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not so much that this book contains revelation from Jesus, but revelation about Jesus. It's not just about what he reveals, but who he is revealed to be in the pages of this book. I think the best way to understand this is to think about revelation actually as rather similar to the Gospels, to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But with this key difference, this is what we talked about back at Christmas time. The Gospels reveal Jesus as Messiah in his humility, in meekness, in his taking on flesh and becoming human. Revelation reveals Jesus in majesty and glory and victory. He is the same central theme throughout the New Testament, whether Gospels, Epistles, or here in the book of Revelation. But what we see here in Revelation is this glorious picture of Jesus. We, do, we will not see him at all in this book as a humble, meek, traveling, homeless preacher. We will only see him as the exalted lamb who, though slain, rules forevermore. He is the champion. That's what is revealed about Jesus in this book. So it's a revelation, it's an unveiling, a making known what was hidden before about Jesus. Where does it come from? Who is the source of this revelation? If Jesus is the one being revealed, who is the one doing the revealing? Well, again, look at verse 1. It says it's the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him. The primary source, the, the ultimate author, if you will, of this revelation is God himself. 
And the primary recipient of this revelation is who? Jesus. You see that? It's the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him. What does that mean? In what sense is this revelation something that's given to Jesus? Well, stop and think about the promises that we know about from the Old and New Testament regarding God's Messiah. Throughout Scripture, God promised that his son would be made king of kings and lord of lords. That he would be the heir of everything that belongs to the Father, which is everything. That's what this book is. Because Jesus humbled himself, became human, obediently and perfectly obeyed his Father even to the point of death on the cross, God has given him this revelation in glory. It is his reward, his right to reign as king in light of all that he accomplished through his death and resurrection. In many ways, what we have in this book is what Paul himself talked about back in Philippians chapter 2, when he talks about Jesus being in the form of God, but making himself lowly as a servant, being born in human likeness. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And because of this, look at verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted him. And given him the name above every name. Every knee will bow in heaven and earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's what is given to Jesus. His exaltation and revealing in glory because of his suffering to death. What we have, understand the privilege that we have of reading this book. Through what is recorded in this book, we lowly people get to look in on this gift of glory given by the Father to the Son. That's fantastic. But he continues, because he says not only is this a revelation from God given to Jesus, but it says that God gave it to him to show his servants. We're not just eavesdropping on this scene. This is being played out in a way that through John we can see and hear because there's something that we need to see from this. But who are these servants? This gift of the revelation of Jesus' glory from God to Jesus is also for the sake of his servants. Who are they? This word here is actually, it's the word, the Greek word doulos for slave. Now, there's actually six different words that are used in the New Testament to refer to a slave or a servant. But this one is distinct. This servant is what you may know of as a bond servant. It refers to one who willingly, of their own accord, commits themselves to lifelong service to their master. The Israelites had a custom that if someone wanted to commit themselves lifelong, not out of compulsion, but honestly, it says out of love and respect for their master, that they would tell that to the master, and what the master would do is he would take them over to a door frame that was framed in wood, and he would take an awl, which is just like a big old nail, and he'd put the guy's ear up against the door and drive the awl through his earlobe. And for the rest of his life, he would have this big hole in his ear. 
as a sign marking that he was one who willingly, out of his own accord, out of love for his master, committed himself to lifelong service and loyalty to his master. The revelation from God given to Jesus is for those who have willingly, lovingly committed their lives to service to Jesus. So if you are here today and you are a follower of Jesus, this revelation is for you. That you might know and marvel at who this Jesus is. But the flip side is true too. It means that if you are in here and you are not, at least at this point, one who has committed your life to follow Jesus, then this book is not for you. That doesn't mean that you're like not allowed to read it or hear what's in the book. By all means, please do. Because through this, God might bring you to that point where you go, yeah, put the, put the all through my ear. I want to follow this Jesus. We won't literally do that. But we have baptism, which is a different way of communicating the same idea. The idea is unless, you commit, unless or until you commit yourself in love and service to Jesus, you will not be able to grasp or appreciate what this book has to say. You might be able to somewhat understand the words that come out of my mouth and Todd's mouth as we go through this book. But to the unbeliever, to one who's not a follower of Jesus, this book is chaos and fear and confusion. But to the one who in love has committed themselves to Jesus Christ, this book is an unveiling, an uncovering that makes things very clear for us. It reveals our greatest hope, our greatest longing. doesn't mean that we understand every detail, but a bond slave, a servant of Jesus Christ, will get and love the big picture of this book. Because the big picture of this book is Jesus, our master, who we love and long for. Amen? Okay. It's interesting, though, because this book, which, again, we see there, was given by God to Jesus to show to his servants the things that must do take place. says this. It says, He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. This book comes to us in a very interesting way. It is revealed through an angel to the apostle John. You can almost think of this as some like divine game of telephone. God gives it to Jesus, who sends his angel to give it to John so that we might know it. And if you ever played telephone as a kid, you know things get lost in translation, right? Things get lost in the transfer. But not here. It says that John was faithful to record everything just as he saw it. We have a faithful record of this. But for now, we're going to talk more about this guy, John. I want to draw your attention to the idea that it was made known by the sending of an angel. Because angels play a very upfront role in the book of Revelation, more so than any other book in the entire Bible. As a matter of fact, over the course of the book, angels make an appearance 71 times in this book. And I would say this too is part of the apocalypse, the unveiling of truth that's contained in this book. Angels being seen in their role as servants of God and messengers to humanity, it shows us that reality is bigger than we conceive of it. That in the world, in the universe that God has created, there is both a physical realm and a spiritual realm. 
And that spiritual realm affects this physical realm to a much greater degree than any of us, myself included, could possibly understand because we can't interact with that realm through our senses. But as you look at the overarching story of the Bible, you see both the spiritual and the physical were created by God. And I would even say with the intention that they would not be as separated and disjointed as they currently are. Part of the reason for the disjointment and the separation between the two is because the rebellion against God's good rule actually originated in the spiritual realm. To the best that we can understand, it was angels who initially rebelled against God. And the, the original one, the one that we know as Satan or the enemy, the, the, the opponent, he was also the one who then comes as a serpent into the Garden of Eden, into the physical realm to lead humanity astray into rebellion against God too. The rebellion against God happens both in the physical and the spiritual realm, but the amazing promise of the gospel that we see probably most clearly in what Paul says in Ephesians chapter one is that Jesus came not just to die for our sins. He came not just to rescue humanity, but Paul says there that God's plan for the fullness of time was to unite all things in heaven and on earth together in Jesus. And what we see in the book of Revelation by the time that we get to the end is that unification as this heavenly, physical city is made realized in which God's people live with him forever in unity. Part of what's revealed to us is God's intent to unite the spiritual and the physical together in himself. It's fantastic. And we who are very, very, very physically minded have a lot to learn from that. There's two more things in our last couple minutes together that I want to point out to you about this book. One has to do with the prophetic nature of the book. The other one has to do with the promise for those who read this book. So first, let's talk about this book as prophecy. If you look back at verse 1, it says that God gave this to Jesus to show his servants the things that must soon take place. This book is a book of prophecy about things that will soon take place. John clarifies it further in verse 3 when he says that this is the, the, the words in this book are words of prophecy. But let's stop and talk about that for a second because oftentimes when we think about prophecy, we think about telling the future, foretelling what's going to happen in the future. And clearly there is much of that in the book of Revelation. But remember, prophecy essentially is not just about the future. It's communication directly from God. The prophet is the one who says and announces, thus says the Lord, and then says what God says. When we, read, when we think of this book as prophecy, the first thing we need to think about is that this is a divine book. This is God's word to us, like the rest of Scripture. That being said, it does contain a lot about the future. As a matter of fact, a few verses later in Revelation 1.19, Jesus himself speaks to John and says, write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. Many people look at this verse as basically another outline of the book as a whole. 
The revelations that John has given concern both things that are present realities and those that will take place after this. At least, I mean, we're talking about from John's perspective 2,000 years ago. That's one of the big questions we ask when we read this book. When something is stated as present or even future, that's from John's perspective. What does that mean for us living 2,000 years later? Maybe another way that's helpful to think about this is that it's not just about what already happened versus what's going to happen. It's also what in this book has begun to happen. It's already in motion, though the full completion of it awaits the future. We talked about that a little bit in our Advent series at Christmas time, the already not yet nature of the time in which we live. The kingdom of God has already broken into this world, though we have not yet seen its fullness. Jesus has already been exalted as King of kings and Lord of lords, but every knee does not yet bow before him. Much of what we see in the book of Revelation, I think, is somewhere in there. It's things that have begun to be fulfilled as we await the final fulfillment. But when will that be? The book of Revelation shows us a picture of when there's no more not yet. There's just already. But when is that going to be? Look again at what the beginning of the book says. It talks about things that must soon take place. It talks about the time being near. This idea of soon, it's the Greek word takos, and we need to stop for a second and understand that because this word, it's huge for the rest of the book. It comes up a lot. And it can mean both something that happens in a brief length of time, like it's, it's going to happen very quickly, but it can also more have the idea of this is near, this is next, this is what to expect. This word comes up again at the very end of Revelation in chapter 22, when in short succession, Jesus twice says, Behold, I am coming soon. And when you look at that word and compare all the ways that it's used in Revelation, it seems like it's, it's most best, most faithful to the text to, to see it as talking about the idea of nearness not necessarily quickness. This is what theologians have often talked about, the imminence of Christ's return. The idea is not that it's, it's a couple hours away, as much as that it's the next thing on the docket. In the unfolding of God's redemptive plan, this is what we are to expect to happen next. Maybe a short time, time maybe a long time. We know so far it has been a long time since John wrote this book, probably somewhere around 95 AD. It's been a long time. Does that mean that Jesus was wrong in saying he would come back soon? No. That's the next thing we await. That is the next thing for which we hope. This idea of soonness means that it's near and that it's certain. There may not be a countdown to when it happens, but we can count on it. Does that make sense? One last idea I want to show you from this idea of prophecy, and it's this. Anytime that we see prophecy in Scripture, it's a two-sided coin. That these revelations from God include both the promise of hope and salvation for those who trust Him, and the promise of wrath and destruction for those who do not. 
That's what we see in the book of Revelation as well. We see both the lamb who was slain for the sin of the world, and we also see the outpouring of the wrath of the lamb on those who refused to repent and follow him. This book is both a book of judgment and doom for Christ's enemies and a book of vindication and hope for Christ's servants. And that brings me to the last thing I want to talk with you about. I know there's been a lot. You guys still with me? Again, we're, we're laying out where we're going to go over the next few weeks, so I don't want to leave anything out that Todd's really going to need to use. So the last thing I want to talk about with you this morning is the promise. What is, if this is a book of hope, what is that hope? What is the promise that is held out to us in this book? Look in particular at verse 3. It says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, because the time is near. There's a blessing held out. There's the promise of blessing held out to us in this book. The beginning, it says, blessed is the one who reads aloud. And that can almost make you think like there's some like magical power in reading these words out loud, like some incantation. Okay, if I read this book out loud, I'm going to get a check in the mail from Jesus next week. That's not what it's talking about. And I would tell you, be very wary of any supposed teacher of God's word who makes promises like that. So what is the nature of this blessing? And what's the connection with reading it out loud? Well, remember, like the rest of the New Testament, these books were written in a time when the making of books was hard and time-consuming. Johannes Gutenberg hadn't been born yet. It'd be another 1,500 years before he would. There weren't a lot of copies around, and so copies of God's word were precious. Typically, a church would have maybe one. Not only that, most Christians at that time were unable to read because they just didn't have access to to books. It wasn't a useful task for them. And so, in the same way as we see with other New Testament books, this book was designed to be delivered to churches who would gather together often on a Sunday morning like we are right now, And one who had the ability to read would read it aloud to the people so that they might hear. That's what's talking about here. Blessed is the one who reads this book aloud in the gathering of believers. And blessed are those who hear it and keep it. Again, like I said, it's not some weird sort of blessing we're trying to get from God because we read the book. The book is the blessing. The words contained in it are the blessing. One commentator said it like this. He said, The blessedness, which is of benefit both to readers and hearers alike, arises from the fact that they are hearing the words of God, the testimony of Jesus. They are made privy to the continuing plan and purpose of God for the future, for which otherwise otherwise would have remained hidden. The blessedness comes in that God has let us in. He has pulled back the veil and revealed to us his intended conclusion for history. We are blessed to know this. The blessing also shows itself in the fact that this book promises that God's people will go through hard times. There will be trials. There will be tribulations. And the promise of blessing that this book holds out to us is that throughout the the entire history of the church, as God's people have been oppressed and suffered, we know, in spite of our circumstances, 
Jesus still reigns as king and he is working all of history to his intended conclusion. The blessing is hope in the midst of the continuing trials because that is not all that there is. Even our little trials that look like that blurry, messed up painting we talked about at the beginning, this book gives us the big picture. Okay, God, that's what you're up to. I can entrust even my suffering to you because you will make all things new and you will wipe away every tear from our eyes. This is good news. But look again at verse three. It says in particular, blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in this. doesn't mean necessarily like just make sure you keep a copy and keep it safe. That word keep throughout the Old and New Testament has the idea of obedience. Blessed are those who not only hear the word read, but obey what it says. Because this book doesn't just call us to hear and be amazed, but to hear and obey. Ultimately, though this book contains a lot of promises about the future, this book is ultimately not just about the future. It's about motivating us to live faithfully in the present. To live our day-to-day lives in faith in Jesus and in faithfulness to Jesus. Because God's kingdom has already begun. Jesus' reign is already being realized and one day it will come to fruition. We don't know when it will be, but it is sure, it is near. If you listen to this book as we read it and explain it and walk through it and ask questions of it over the next three months, if you read it with ears that want to obey, to make it an integral part of your life, to live in the hope that this book announces, you will be blessed. That's the promise of this book. And it's not just here at the beginning. At the beginning it says, blessed is the one who hears and obeys. At the very end of the book in chapter 22, Jesus himself says, blessed is the one who keeps the words of prophecy in this book. The beginning and end of this book is blessing. And you know what else? It happens five more times throughout. Chapter 1, we just read, blessed is the one who hears. Chapter 14, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. Chapter 16, Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his garments on so that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. We'll talk more about what that means later. (laughs) Chapter 19. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Chapter 20. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Chapter 22. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of prophecy in this book. Chapter 22, again, blessed are those who wash their robes. There are seven promises of blessing in this book. In fact, the number seven comes up in this book again and again and again. And the significance of that number we'll continue and unpack as we go through the book. But suffice it to say, after this sevenfold blessing, it is worth it to read and to hear and to obey what this book has to say. Amen? Do you want that? Do you want to live day by day with the promise and the expectancy that our king is coming again? Do you want to not be so shaken by your circumstances? 
Do you not want to not again feel like the sucker for putting your hope in something that ends up being rather fragile and unstable? Then make it a point to be with us as we work through this book, to read, to pray, to enjoy this with us. There is so much blessing to be had. Amen? Let's pray. (sighs) Father God, thank you for this time. I know that there was a lot to talk about. There was a lot of these little uh, markers on the roadmap to cover. Thank you for the nature of this book as this revelation, this making known of Jesus. Would you help us not to be intimidated by it? Would you help us to regularly step back and see that big picture because there is such hope? Lord, would you cause us to trust and believe that there is blessing in knowing what you have to show us in this book? Would you guide us, Lord Jesus? I pray that we would be different as a church as husbands and dads and wives and moms, as single people and high schoolers, because we are changed by the vision of hope, the vision of glory, the vision of your intended purpose for all of history that we see here. Would you bring us the blessing that you've promised as we hear and obey what you have to say? We ask this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.